Welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Okay, so today on the podcast, we have a very special guest reader, Ariel Wise, who is currently a 2L at Windsor Law. So me and Zach had one year of overlap with her. And she's going to read for us Beaver and the Queen. So what do we remember about this one, Zach? So I remember Beaver. It took me a minute to jog my memory. Again, read so many cases sometimes. I know. But I remember (laughs) this one about being, um, it's an undercover drug bust and it deals with possession. And it's about, um, gosh, the accused had it. It was... um, they were held out to believe it wasn't drugs. It was, what was it? Uh, it was sugar something else. of milk. It, it looked so I, like uh, drugs. Sh- sugar of milk, right. I knew it had such a funny turn of phrase. I was the same. The decision made, I completely didn't remember this at all. And then I was listening to Ariel read it, uh, like cause she'd sent us her uh, recording. And I was like, sugar of milk, sugar of milk. And then I remembered. So that was definitely the key trigger word for me. Yeah, because I remember like, it was. So, it's like, who hears that? Yeah, it's, I don't know what it is. So, <laughs> like, what is sugar of milk? <laughs> I, I anyways, don't know. that's not important. Yes. <laughs> that's it's those funny legal triggers though that you read in cases. Right? Oh yeah, these funny um, turns of phrase or substances that are used. You're like, oh, I remember this case now because of the sugar yeah. of milk. milk I mean, sugar? it doesn't come up that often, so I've ne- I've never heard that word outside of the context no. of this case. So <laughs> that's why it rang so many bells. Neither but yeah, I. it's about mens rea, right? Like if I'm selling drugs, I need yeah. to know that the thing that I'm selling is drugs. And if I genuinely don't think that it is drugs, then it's going to be hard to establish that I had the requisite mens rea in order to sell the non-drugs drugs in question. Yeah, and it's one of those things where just like saying it out loud kind of makes it easier to understand than just like reading it or understanding it in an ex- abstract way. And it's interesting especially with this case because of the the sugar of milk or milk sugar being used because it's a substance that looks like narcotics and so if you're gonna sell that and you believe it to not be i'll just use cocaine in this example because i assume it's like a white powder (laughs) um if you're selling that you would go oh like i'm selling milk sugar and the cop goes that looks like cocaine well how can someone be guilty if they honestly thought they were selling milk sugar to someone like i yeah like, how do we draw the line, obviously, and where do we draw the line for determining what somebody's guilty of doing in their head? Exactly. And this is so I believe this is the case that establishes mistake of fact as an actual defense, because it'll go to yeah. the mens rea of the offense. If you honestly didn't know what you were doing was illegal in the sense of mens rea, obviously, because ignorance of the law is not what is it? Ignorance of the law. I should know this. Ignorance of the law is not a defense. It's sex- yeah. <laughs> I know this. I know this. And I'm willing to put my neck out there as as an unlicensed member of the law society. And I will say it's section nine of the criminal code. Ignorance of the law is no defense when it there comes to like criminal or provincial prosecutions. But perfect. Um, jokes, jokes aside. Yeah. And that's that's a very good point, because you get these two kind of things that go in tandem between yes. mistake and fact and Uh, Section 9 of the Criminal Code, um, Ignorance of the Law is No Defense, which is interesting. It makes, obviously, mistake of fact, this is really a true crimes thing, and it's not so much a regulatory offense. So if you're speeding, you're speeding kind of thing. But um, that's that's it's a great case for 1L. I honestly think. Oh, yeah. Now remembering it, it's a great one to pull apart what mens rea is. Yeah. And you're exactly right. Like, it helps you 
distinguish the difference between Section 9 of the Code and mistake of fact going towards mens rea of the offense. Because on the surface, they don't seem like different things, but they are actually different things because they're going to different aspects of the offense. And yes, obviously no application to regulatory offenses because it's statutory liability, no. but <laughs> they're strict liability, so it doesn't matter. Yeah, but just, for you know, these are... regular offenses, code offenses. Yeah. yeah, and that's like what crim law is about, right? It... Exactly. Uh, but yeah. With that interesting decision, uh, we'll leave this one to Ariel and let her take it away. Enjoy. Beaver v. The Queen The judgment of Justices Rand, Locke, and Cartwright was delivered by Justice Cartwright. The appellant was tried jointly, with one Max Beaver before his honor, Judge Forsythe, and a jury in the Court of General Sessions of the Peace for the County of York on an indictment reading as follows. The jurors for Our Lady the Queen present that Lewis Beaver and Max Beaver at the City of Toronto in the County of York on or about the 12th day of March in the year 1954 unlawfully to sell a drug, to wit, diacetylmorphine without the authority of a license from the Minister of National Health and Welfare or other lawful authority contrary to Section 41F of the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act. The said jurors further present that the said Lewis Beaver and Max Beaver at the City of Toronto in the County of York on or about the 12th day of March in the year 1954 unlawfully did have in their possession a drug, to wit, diacetylmorphine without the authority of a license from the Minister of National Health and Welfare or other lawful authority contrary to Section 41D of the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act. And further, that the said Lewis Beaver is an habitual criminal. And further, that the said Max Beaver is an habitual criminal. On September 19, 1955, the accused were found guilty on both counts. And on the same day, the learned trial judge found them to be habitual criminals. On October 17, 1955, the learned judge sentenced them to seven years imprisonment on each count, the sentences to run concurrently, and also imposed sentences of preventative detention. Max Beaver has since died, and we are concerned only with the case of the appellant. The appellant appealed to the Court of Appeal for Ontario against both convictions and against the finding that he was an habitual criminal. These appeals were dismissed. On February 19, 1957, the appellant was given leave to appeal to this court from the convictions on the two counts on the following grounds. 1. The learned trial judge erred in failing to instruct the jury that if they accepted the evidence of Lewis Beaver, or were in doubt as a result of it, he was not guilty of the offense. 2. The learned trial judge erred in holding that the accused Lewis Beaver was guilty of the offense charged, whether he knew the package handed by the accused Max Beaver to the police were drugs or not. 3. The learned trial judge erred in instructing the jury that the only point that they had to decide was whether in fact the package handed the police by the accused Max Beaver was diacetylmorphine. 4. 
The charge to the jury by the learned trial judge and the court of appeal is an error in holding that the accused Lewis Beaver could be convicted of the offense charged in the absence of knowledge on his part that the substance in question was a drug. By the same order, leave to appeal from the finding that the appellant was an habitual criminal was granted, conditionally upon the appeals from the convictions being successful. It is not necessary to set out the facts in detail. There was evidence on which it was open to the jury to find, one, that Max Beaver sold to a police officer who was working undercover a package which in fact contained diacetylmorphine. Two, that the appellant was a party to the sale of the package. Three, that while the appellant did not have the package on his person or in his physical possession, he and Max Beaver were acting jointly, in such circumstances that the possession which the latter had of the package was the possession of both of the accused. And four, that the appellant had no knowledge that the substance contained in the package was diacetylmorphine and believed it to be sugar of milk. I do not mean to suggest that the jury would necessarily have made the fourth finding, but there was evidence on which they might have done so, or which might have left them in a state of doubt as to whether or not the appellant knew that the package contained anything other than sugar of milk. The learned trial judge against the protest of the appellant charged the jury, in effect, that if they were satisfied that the appellant had in his possession a package and sold it, then, if in fact the substance contained in the package was diacetylmorphine, the appellant was guilty on both counts. And that the questions, one, whether he had any knowledge of what the substance was, or two, whether he entertained the honest but mistaken belief that it was a harmless substance, were irrelevant and must not be considered. Justice Laidlaw, who delivered the unanimous judgment of the Court of Appeal, was of the opinion that this charge was right in law and that the learned trial judge was bound by the decision in Rex v. Lawrence to direct the jury as he did. The main question on this appeal is whether this view of the law is correct. The problem is one of construction of the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act, and particularly the following sections, which at the date of the offense is charged read as follows. 4.1. Every person who D has in his possession any drug, save and accept under the authority of a license from the minister first, hadn't obtained, or other lawful authority, F manufactures, sells, gives away, delivers, or distributes, or makes any offer in respect of any drug, or any substance represented or held out by such person to be a drug, to any person without first obtaining a license from the minister or without other lawful authority is guilty of an offense and is liable upon indictment to imprisonment for any term not exceeding seven years and not less than six months and to a fine not exceeding one thousand dollars and not less than two hundred dollars and in addition at the discretion of the judge to be whipped or, upon summary conviction, to imprisonment with or without hard labor for any term not exceeding 18 months and not less than 6 months, and to a fine not exceeding $1,000 and not less than $2,000. 4.2. Notwithstanding the provisions of the criminal code, 
or of any other statute or law, the court has no power to impose less than the minimum penalties herein prescribed, and shall, in all cases of conviction, impose both fine and imprisonment. 11.1. No person shall, without lawful authority or without a permit signed by the minister or some person authorized by him in that behalf, import or have in his possession any opium pipe, opium lamp, or other device or apparatus designed or generally used for the purpose of preparing opium for smoking, or smoking or inhaling opium, or any article capable of being used as or as part of any such pipe, lamp, or other device or apparatus. 11.2. Any person violating the provisions of this section is liable, upon summary conviction, to a fine not exceeding $100, and not less than $50, or to imprisonment for a term not exceeding three months, or to both fine and imprisonment. 15. Where any person is charged with an offense under paragraph A, D, E, F, or G of subsection 1 of section 4, It is not necessary for the prosecuting authority to establish that the accused had not a license for the minister or was not otherwise authorized to commit the act complained of. And if the accused pleads or alleges that he had such license or other authority, the burden of proof thereof shall be upon the person so charged. 17. Without limiting the generality of paragraph D of subsection 1 of section 4, Any person who occupies, controls, or is in possession of any building, room, vessel, vehicle, enclosure, or place, in or upon which any drug or any article mentioned in Section 11 is found, shall, if charged with having such drug or article in possession without lawful authority, be deemed to have been so in possession, unless he prove that the drug or article was there without his authority, knowledge, or consent or that he was lawfully entitled to the possession thereof. In the course of the argument, counsel also referred to the following provisions of other statutes of Canada. The Interpretation Act, Section 28, Sub 1. Every act shall be read and construed as if any offense for which the offender may be a. prosecuted by indictment Howsoever such offense may be therein described or referred to, were described or referred to as an indictable offense. B. Punishable on summary conviction, were described or referred to as an offense. And all provisions of the criminal code relating to indictable offenses or offenses as the case may be, shall apply to every such offense. The Criminal Code, Section 5. In this act, unless the context otherwise requires, b. Having in one's possession includes not only having in one's own personal possession, but also knowingly, 1. Having in the actual possession or custody of any other person, and 2. Having in any place, whether belonging to or occupied by oneself or not, for the use or benefit of oneself or of any other person. 5. 2. If there are two or more persons, and any one or more of them, with the knowledge and consent of the rest, has or have anything in his or their custody or possession, it shall be deemed and taken to be in the custody and possession of each and all of them. 
The judgment and appeal is supported by earlier decisions of appellate courts in Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. But, a directly contrary view has been expressed by the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. While this conflict has existed since 1948, this is the first occasion on which the question has been brought before this court. It may be of assistance in examining the problem to use a simple illustration. Suppose X goes to the shop of Y, a druggist, and asks Y to sell him some baking soda. Y hands him a sealed packet, which he tells him contains baking soda, and charges him a few cents. X honestly believes that the packet contains baking soda, but in fact it contains heroin. X puts the package in his pocket, takes it home, and later puts it in a cupboard in his bathroom. There would seem to be no doubt that X has had actual manual and physical possession of the package, and that he continues to have possession of the package while it is in his cupboard. The main question raised on this appeal is whether, in the supposed circumstances, X would be guilty of the crime of having heroin in his possession. It will be observed at once that we are not concerned with the incidence of the burden of proof or of the obligation of adducing evidence. The judgment of the Court of Appeal states the law to be that X must be convicted although he proves to the point of demonstration that he honestly believed the package to contain baking soda. I have examined all the cases referred to by counsel in the course of their full and helpful arguments, but do not propose to refer to them in detail, as the differences of opinion which they disclose are not so much as to the principles by which the court should be guided in construing a statute which creates a crime, as to the result of applying those principles to the act with which we are concerned. The rule of construction has often been stated. In the company of proprietors of the Margate Pier v. Hannum, Lord Coke is quoted as having said, Acts of Parliament are to be so construed as no man that is innocent or free from injury or wrong be by a literal construction punished or endamaged. In the Attorney General v. Bradlaw, Master of the Rolls Brett said, Now, to my mind, it is contrary to the whole established law of England, unless legislation on the subject has clearly enacted it. To say that a person can be guilty of a crime in England without a wrongful intent, without an attempt to do that which the law has forbidden. I am aware that in a particular case, and under a particular criminal statute, 15 judges to one held that a person whom the jury found to have no intent to do what was forbidden, and whom the jury found to have been deceived and to have understood the facts to be such that he might, with impunity, have done a certain thing, was by the terms of that act of parliament guilty of a crime and could be imprisoned. I say still, as I said then, that I cannot subscribe to the propriety of that decision. I bow to it, but I cannot subscribe to it. But the majority of the judges forming the court so held because it said the enactment was absolutely clear. In Reynolds v. G. H. Austin and Sons Limited, Justice Devlin says, It has always been a principle of the common law that mens rea is an essential element in the commission of any criminal offense against the common law. In the case of statutory offenses, it depends on the effect of the statute. In Charas v. Derutzen, 
Justice Wright, in his well-known judgment, laid it down that there was a presumption that mens rea was an essential ingredient in a statutory offense, but that that presumption was liable to be displaced either by the words of the statute creating the offense or by the subject matter with which it dealt. Justice Kennedy, in Hobbs v. Winchester Corporation, thought that in construing a modern statute, this presumption as to mens rea did not exist. In this respect, as he said, he differed from Justice Channel in the court below. But the view of Justice Wright in Chirath v. Rudson has consistently been followed. I need refer only to the dictum of Chief Justice Lord Goddard in Harding v. Price. The general rule applicable to criminal cases is actus non facet reum nisi mens sit rea, and I venture to repeat what I said in Bren v. Wood. It is of the utmost importance for the protection of the liberty of the subject that a court should always bear in mind that unless the statute either clearly or by necessary implication rules out mens rea as a constituent part of a crime, the court should not find a man guilty of an offense against the criminal law unless he has a guilty mind. In Regina v. Tolson, Justice Stephen says, I think it may be laid down as a general rule that an alleged offender is deemed to have acted under that state of facts which he in good faith and on reasonable grounds believed to exist when he did the act alleged to be an offense. I am unable to suggest any real exception to this rule, nor has one ever been suggested to me. Of course, it would be competent to the legislature to define a crime in such a way as to make the existence of any state of mind immaterial. The question is solely whether it has actually done so in this case. I adhere to the opinion which, with the concurrence of my brother Nolan, I expressed in the Queen v. Rees, that the first of the statements of Justice Stephen, quoted above, should now be read in the light of the judgment of Chief Justice Lord Goddard, concurred in by Justices Linsky and Devlin in Wilson v. In Yang, which, in my opinion, rightly decides that the essential question is whether the belief entertained by the accused is an honest one and that the existence or non-existence of reasonable grounds for such belief is merely relevant evidence to be weighed by the tribunal of fact in determining that essential question. In Watts and Gaunt v. The Queen, Justice Esty says, while an offense of which mens rea is not an essential ingredient may be created by legislation, in view of the general rule, a section creating an offense ought not to be so construed unless Parliament has, by express language or necessary implication, disclosed such an intention. I do not suggest that the principle stated in the above excerpts was absent from the minds of the learned judges in the courts of appeal in Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia who decided the cases on which the respondent relies. Those decisions are founded on the judgment of the Court of King's Bench appeal side in Morelli v. The King, in which Justice Bond concluded his reasons as follows. I therefore reach the conclusion that while it is a principle of our law that to constitute an offense, there must be a guilty mind, and that principle must be imported into the statute, yet, by apt words, Parliament may exclude such a requirement, and in the case now under consideration, has effectively done so. 
When the decisions as to the construction of the Opium and Narcotic Drug Act on which the respondent relies are examined, it appears that two main reasons are assigned for holding that mens rea is not an essential ingredient of the offense created by subsection 41D. These being one, the assumption that the subject matter with which the act deals is of the kind dealt with in the cases of which Hobbes v. Winchester Corporation is typical, and which are sometimes referred to as public welfare offense cases. And two, by implication, from the wording of section 17 of the act. As to the first of these reasons, I can discern little similarity between a statute designed by forbidding the sale of unsound meat to ensure that the supply available to the public shall be wholesome, and a statute making it a serious crime to possess or deal in narcotics. The one is to ensure that a lawful and necessary trade shall be carried on in a manner not to endanger the public health. The other, to forbid altogether conduct regarded as harmful in itself. As a necessary feature of his trade, the butcher holds himself out as selling meat fit for consumption. He warns that quality, and it is part of his duty as trader to see that the merchandise is wholesome. The statute simply converts that civil personal duty into a public duty. A few passages from the judgment in Hobbs v. Winchester Corporation will show the view taken of the purpose of the legislation there under consideration. Master of the Rolls Cozens Hardy at page 476. Before reading the material words of these sections, it is perhaps convenient to indicate what is the plain and apparent object of the act with regard to the sale of unsound meat. The object is to prevent danger to the public health by the sale of meat for human consumption in a state or condition in which it is dangerous to human health. Justice Farwell at page 481. Who is to take the risk of the meat being unsound, the butcher or the public? In my opinion, the legislature intended that the butcher should take the risk and that the public should be protected, irrespective of the guilt or innocence of the butcher. The knowledge or possible means of knowledge of the butcher is not a matter which affects the public. It is the unsound meat which poisons them. And I think that the legislature intended the butcher should sell unsound meat at his peril. Justice Kennedy at pages 484 to 485. A man takes upon himself to offer goods to the public for their consumption with a view to making profit by the sale of them. Those goods may be so impregnated with disease as to carry death or at any rate serious injury to health to anyone consuming them. To say that the difficulty of discovering the disease is a sufficient ground for enabling the seller to excuse himself on the plea that he cannot be reasonably expected to have the requisite technical knowledge or to keep an analyst on his premises is simply to say that the public are to be left unprotected and must submit take the risk of purchasing an article of food which may turn out to be dangerous to life or health. I think that the policy of the act is this, that if a man chooses for profit to engage in a business, which involves the offering for sale of that which may be deadly or injurious to health, he must take that risk 
and that it is not a sufficient defense for anyone who chooses to embark on such a business to say, I could not have discovered the disease unless I had an analyst on the premises. Assuming that Hobbes v. Winchester Corporation was rightly decided, I do not think that his reasoning supports the decision of the Court of Appeal in the case at bar. The difference between the subject matter of the legislation there considered and that of the act with which we are concerned is too wide. As to the second reason, the argument is put as follows. Using again the illustration I have taken above, it is said, one, that the words of section 17 would require the conviction of X if the package was found in his bathroom cupboard unless he proved that it was there without his authority, knowledge, or consent. That is, he is prima facie presumed to be guilty, but can exculpate himself by proving lack of knowledge. And two, that since no such words as unless he proved the drug was in his possession without his knowledge are found in subsection 41 d it must be held that Parliament intended that lack of knowledge should be no defense. In my view, all that Section 17 accomplishes, still using the same illustration, is, on proof that the package was in his cupboard, to shift to X the onus of proving that he did not have possession of the package. To this, X would answer, Of course I had possession of the package. I bought it, paid for it, carried it home, and put it in my cupboard. My defense is that I thought it contained baking soda. I had no idea it contained heroin. If it be suggested that X could not usefully make this reply, if what was found in his house was not a sealed package but an article of the sort described in section 11, the answer would appear to be that many persons might not recognize an opium lamp or an article capable of being used as part of such a lamp. The wording of section 17 does not appear to me to compel the court to construe section 4 as the Court of Appeal has done. It still leaves unanswered the question, has X possession of heroin when he has in his hand or in his pocket or in his cupboard a package which in fact contains heroin but which he honestly believes contains only baking soda? In my opinion, that question must be answered in the negative. The essence of the crime is the possession of the forbidden substance, and in a criminal case there is in law no possession without knowledge of the character of the forbidden substance. Just as in Regina v. Ashwell, the accused did not in law have possession of the complainant's sovereign, so long as he honestly believed it to be a shilling, so in my illustration X did not have possession of heroin, so long as he honestly believed the package to contain baking soda. The words of Chief Justice Lord Coleridge in Regina v. Ashwell, quoted by Justice Charles, delivering the unanimous judgment of the Court of Criminal Appeal in Rex v. Hudson. In good sense, it seems to me he did not take it till he knew what he had got, and when he knew what he had got, the same instant he stole it. Might well be adapted to my illustration to read, in good sense, it seems to me he did not have possession of heroin till he knew what he had got. In my view, the law is correctly stated in the following passage in the judgment of Justice O'Halloran, with whom Justice Robertson concurred in Rex v. Hess. To constitute possession within the meaning of the criminal law, it is my judgment that where, as here, there is manual handling of a thing, 
it must be coexistent with knowledge of what a thing is. And both these elements must be coexistent with some act of control outside public duty. When those three elements exist together, I think it must be conceded that under section 41D, it does not then matter if the thing is retained for an innocent purpose. If the matter were otherwise doubtful, I would be drawn to the conclusion that Parliament did not intend to enact that mens rea should not be an essential ingredient of the offense created by section 41D by the circumstances that on conviction a minimum sentence of six months imprisonment plus a fine of $200 must be imposed. Council informed us that they have found no other statutory provision which has been held to create a crime of strict responsibility, that is to say, one in which the necessity for mens rea is excluded on conviction, for which a sentence of imprisonment is mandatory. The legislation dealt with in Hobbs v. Winchester Corporation provided that a sentence of imprisonment might, not must, be imposed on a convicted person. As to this, Justice Kennedy said, Great stress is laid on the character of the punishment that may be inflicted under Section 117. I protest for myself that we are not to assume that where a judicial discretion is granted by the legislature, the tribunal, whatever its rank may be, exercising that discretion will exercise it otherwise than in a judicial manner. Because there may be a case, as there obviously may be, in which a man unknowingly exposes for sale food, which is dangerous to health. And because the offense created by the statute is punishable by imprisonment in the first instance, that, to my mind, is not a ground for holding that a mens rea must be shown in every case. If it is shown that the man had no guilty knowledge, the magistrate would probably inflict a merely nominal fine. At page 481, Master of the Rolls, Cozens Hardy, expressed himself in similar terms. It would, of course, be within the power of Parliament to enact that a person who, without any guilty knowledge, had in his physical possession a package which he honestly believed to contain a harmless substance, such as baking soda, but which in fact contained heroin, must, on proof of such facts, be convicted of a crime and sentenced to at least six months imprisonment. But I would refuse to impute such an intention to Parliament unless the words of the statute were clear and admitted of no other interpretation. To borrow the words of Lord Kenyon in Fowler v. Paget, I would adopt any construction of the statute that the words will bear. In order to avoid such monstrous consequences as would manifestly ensue from the construction contended for. The conclusion which I have reached on the main question as to the proper construction of the word possession makes it unnecessary for me to consider the other points raised by Mr. Dubin in his argument as to the construction of Section 41D. For the above reasons, I would quash the conviction on the charge of having possession of a drug. As to the charge of selling, as is pointed out by my brother Fauteux, the appellant's version of the facts brings his actions within the provisions of subsection 41F. Since he and his brother jointly sold a substance represented or held out by them to be heroin. 
And I agree with the conclusion of my brother Fauteux that the conviction on the charge of selling must be affirmed. For the above reasons, I would dismiss the appeal as to the first count, that is, of selling, but would direct that the time during which the appellant has been confined pending the termination of the appeal shall count as part of the term of imprisonment imposed pursuant to that conviction. As to the second count, that is of having possession, I would allow the appeal, quash the conviction, and direct a new trial. As leave to appeal from the finding that the appellant is an habitual criminal was granted conditionally upon the appeal from the convictions being successful, and as the appeal as to one conviction has failed, we are without jurisdiction to review the finding that the appellant is an habitual criminal, and in the result, that finding stands. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. Hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy at julielundyart.com. Music by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. We're always open to ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out at Legal Listening on Twitter and at legallistening.com. We'll talk to you next time.